We're going to turn over in our Bibles to Matthew 24, 29 to 31 this morning, please. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. When discussing the end time events, two significant discussions form around the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church and the return of Christ. Much ink has been spilled. Various opinions given about these two events. From a theological perspective, the rapture and the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, the return of Christ, are two phases of the second coming. So we have the second coming of Christ, phase one, rapture of the church, phase two, return of Christ to earth. The Thessalonian epistles present an overview of the rapture and the return, demonstrating their differences. Now, we're not going to go through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians this morning, but I would like to give an overview from those two epistles. The first epistle to the Thessalonians is all about the rapture of the church. 2nd Thessalonians is all about the return of Christ. So, the differences between the rapture and the return. The rapture involves believers. 1st Thessalonians 4.14. The rapture involves believers. The return involves unbelievers. The return of Christ involves unbelievers, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. The rapture, there are no prophetical events that precede the rapture. There are no prophetical events that precede the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.14-16. However, the return of Christ has many prophesied events preceding it. There are many prophesied events preceding the return of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-8. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. The return of Christ occurs at the end of the tribulation. The return of Christ occurs at the end of the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 8. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 8. The rapture. At the rapture, Christ will only be seen by his people. At the rapture, Christ will only be seen by his people. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. At the return, Christ will be seen by the whole world. Okay? The whole world will see Christ at the return. 2 Thessalonians 1. 7 to 8. The rapture is a time of comfort. The rapture is a time of comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 But the return of Christ is a time of woe. A time of woe. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 And finally, the rapture. At the raptures, believers will eternally be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Believers will be eternally with the Lord. But at the return of Christ, unbelievers will be eternally separated from the Lord. So those two events are vastly different. They are separated by a seven-year period known as the tribulation. The rapture, then the tribulation, then the return of Christ. Regarding the rapture, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, The Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now I want to take a moment and go through that sequence of events with you regarding the rapture. Again, if the rapture is imminent, it could happen at any time, there are no prophesied events that have to occur before the rapture. Okay? Number one, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. When Jesus comes, he's going to issue a command. He's going to shout for the command that will physically resurrect the dead saints. He says in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which you all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. So that shout is the command for the dead in Christ to rise. Second, he will descend with the voice of the archangel. Now the archangel is a chief angel who has rank over other angels, particularly an angelic army. And since he is chief or a captain over other angels, the idea here is that at the rapture, Jesus is being accompanied by an angelic army. The mention of the archangel's voice implies that he is commanding this army. Well, why does he need an army for the rapture? I'll tell you in just a moment. Third, so first, he descends from heaven with a shout. Second, we have the voice of the archangel. Third, the Lord descends with the trumpet of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 52, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay, the rapture was a mystery, folks. It's something not previously disclosed. It's not until the epistles that... The Lord discloses the rapture to us. That's why there's no rapture mentioned in Matthew 24. It was, a, it was a mystery still. Paul says, I want to show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we all, dead and alive, will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Now that's quick. All of these events I'm going through with you are happening in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Fourth, when the Lord descends, the dead in Christ will rise first. At the rapture, the soul and spirits of the dead saints who return with Jesus are going to have their bodies resurrected and restored. They will be raised, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 52, imperishable. That is, they receive new bodies that are immortal and incorruptible. Fifth, when the Lord descends, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That word caught up, harpazo, means to be snatched away. In the Latin translation of the text, uh, it uses the Latin word rapturo here. This is where we get the uh, theological term rapture. All of these events occurring at the rapture or at the snatching up are happening, as Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Immediately as the dead saints are receiving their new bodies, you and I, if we're still alive at that time, we are being raptured together with them. And we're receiving our new immortal, imperishable bodies. We will be changed, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable must put on imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. 
And then there's a sixth event in that sequence there. All believers will meet the Lord in the air. Now, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2.2? Satan is the prince of the power of the what? The air. In other words, this meeting place between Jesus and the church, between the bride and the groom, is going to occur in enemy territory. It's going to happen right under Satan's nose. Do you see why an angelic army comes with Jesus? Because this is going to be a time of, not for us, but it will be a time of spiritual warfare. Because Satan is going to attempt to do everything and anything to prevent this. And so when, he come, when Jesus comes to rapture us, he's bringing an angelic army that is going to hold Satan and his forces of evil at bay while he calls us home. So six events all happening in the moment, the twinkling of an eye. The Lord descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain are caught up together, and together we will meet the Lord in the air. Now beginning in Matthew 24... And verse 4 through 28, Jesus now lays out the tribulation event. So the rapture happens. We're out of here. Okay? How do you know the rapture has to happen before the tribulation? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 make it clear. That we will escape the wrath, the tribulation to come. Okay? We will not be here for it. Okay? Also, 2 Thessalonians makes it very clear. That the Antichrist, the man of sin, the lawless one, the son of perdition, who signs the covenant with Israel that initiates the tribulation, he cannot be revealed until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. Now, if the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer permanently, then when is the Holy Spirit taken away? At the rapture. Okay? He's in us. We go to heaven. He goes with us. He's no longer here on earth holding back sin and lawlessness. And then the Antichrist, the man of sin, can be revealed. So we're not going to see the tribulation. But here in verse 4 through verse 28, Jesus gives us an overview of what's going to happen in the days following the rapture for the next seven years. So in verses 4 through 14, Jesus gives us various signs of the tribulation's first half. Then in verse 15, we get the midpoint of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation. And that event sets off the tribulation's second half, which Jesus explains in verses 16 through 28. Now remember, Jesus says these are but birth pangs, or labor pains, leading up to the birth of the Messianic age. But for the Messianic age to begin, the Messianic king must return. And so here in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, we have set forth the return of the king. The return of the king. I want to see three things in these three verses about the king's return. Let's begin in verse 29. The moment of the king's return is revealed in verse 29. Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Immediately. Uthaos. Uthaos means without delay. With no intervening time, Jesus is going to return 
immediately after the tribulation. Which tribulation? The tribulation of those days. Those days. Folks, there have been plenty of times, plenty of periods of tribulation for the Jewish people. But this tribulation is the one that occurs in those days of which Jesus has just been speaking of in verses 4 through 28. If the tribulation, this is the final seven years of God's plan to redeem and restore Israel and to bring the times of the Gentiles to an end. Those seven years begin with the covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. Now during the first part of the tribulation, God unleashes seven sealed judgments on the earth that will result in global death and destruction. One fourth of the population will perish during the first half of the tribulation. The Antichrist breaks the covenant after three and a half years. God in turn unleashes two more series of judgments. The seven trumpet judgments and the seven bold judgments during the second half of the tribulation. Again, more global destruction and death, resulting in another third of the population dying. Now, how many people are potentially dying? Well, let's think about this. If the, if the, tribula if the rapture was to occur today and the tribulation began in the next several weeks, there are presently 8 billion people on planet Earth. Okay, 8 billion people. So let's use the 8 billion number. One-fourth of eight billion would be how many? Two billion. Okay? So we've got two billion gone. Immediately. Then we lose another, so that brings us down to six. If we lose a third of six billion, that's another what? Two billion. So we're taking half of humanity and wiping it out in seven years. That's a lot of people. After the seven-year tribulation... The king's return occurs without delay. Without delay. At that moment, Jesus says, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. This is an allusion to several prophecies of Scripture. Isaiah 13.10 The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel 32, 7-8 When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud. The moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heaven I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Joel chapter 2 and verse 10 Before then the earth quakes, the heaven trembles, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Joel 3, 14-15 Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Amos 8 and verse 9 It will come about in that day declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will make the earth dark in broad daylight. One more text, Zechariah 14, 6 In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Now you see in the second half of the tribulation, you'll recall that God diminishes the light of the sun, moon, and stars by a third. John writes in Revelation 8.12, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, so that they would be, a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. But what, what is occurring here at the end of the tribulation 
is not a diminishing of their light, but a complete darkening of these heavenly bodies. God supernaturally manipulates the sun and moon, altering their appearance or ability to provide light. And then regarding the stars, God causes them to fall from the sky. Now, you've got to ask the question, why the change to the sun, moon, and stars? What is God's purpose in diminishing their light and cause of the sun and the moon and causing the stars to fall? You have to understand that the pagans primarily worship the God of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so when the true God of light is revealed in the brightness of his glory, these false gods depicted as heavenly lights will be darkened. The corollary passage of Luke 21 25 to 26, adds this. Due to the astronomical changes, on the earth there will be dismay in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. In other words, the changes to the sun and the moon causes changes to the what? To the sea. Now we know scientifically that the sun and moon both affect the tides, resulting in tidal highs and tidal lows. And the more significant the change to the sun and the moon, the more remarkable the tidal changes. Additionally, the stars will fall on earth, and as a result, humanity is fainting from fear. This word fainting is unique. A popsuko. They're not just passing out. They're literally failing to breathe. Some people are going to die from fright at the sight of the return of the king. Not only will there be astronomical changes at the moment of the king's return, but notice what Jesus says next. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now here's another question. What or who are the powers of heaven? He's not talking about the sun, moon, and stars. What are the powers of heaven? The word powers there, dunamis, refers to authority. It can be divine authority, it can be human authority, it can be angelic authority. The fact that these authorities are in heaven implies what? They're angelic. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says that our struggle, you're not, you're my daily struggle, is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now what we have there by Paul in Ephesians 6 is a ranking of fallen angels, of demons, in whom we engage in spiritual warfare, whether you realize it or not. There is spiritual warfare going on around you at all times. There are rulers... These are fallen angels who have authority or chief over other fallen angels. There are powers. Different word here. This word is exousia. These refer to demons who specifically attack believers. Now we cannot be indwelt by any of them because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they certainly can attack us. World forces, cosmo creatures of darkness are demons who exert evil influence in the world. And spiritual forces of wickedness, pneumatikas, are evil spirits. So we have these four groups of demons mentioned here. And where are demonic forces? Where is their abode? Their abode is in heavenly places. 
Remember, Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of what? The air of the heavenly places. He was kicked out of the third heaven. Right now, he abides where? In the second heaven, which is above us. The powers of heaven are the demonic forces under Satan's authority. And they will be shaken. That word shaken, saluo, they will be distressed. They are going to be distressed because they know their authority is at an end. They are about to be judged. And the moment of that judgment is the moment the king returns and that moment is immediately at the end of the tribulation. Verse 30. We have the moment of the king's return. Now in Matthew 24 verse 30 we have the manifestation of the king's return. The manifestation of the king's return. Let's read verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Then, he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The word then, tota, a temporal adverb meaning at that time. So immediately after the tribulation, at that time, the sign, the visible token, the indicator of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now back in verse 3 of Matthew 24, the disciples said, show us the sign. What, are the, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Same word here, Simeon, Simeon. What's the visible indication of your return? The visible indication is this, me, <laughs> okay? When you see the Son of Man in the sky. That's the sign. Now, he set forth the events of the tribulation first as the sign of his coming. Okay? When you begin to see the events of the tribulation, you know my return is near. In fact, once you see, if you're, well, we won't see it on earth because, Lord willing, we're all believers, we're all saved, we'll all be in heaven at the rapture. But those who don't cut, make the cut, Okay, those who are left behind. When you see that covenant made between Israel and the Antichrist, and you begin seeing those sealed judgments occur, then you can just start marking the days to the return of Christ. Because it's seven years. And at the end, he immediately returns. But, Jesus said in verse 8, the tribulation is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Now remember, as birth pangs begin, as labor pains of pregnancy begin, they intensify, ultimately resulting in the child's birth. So the judgments of the tribulation are intensifying until the birth of the messianic age. And the final contraction, the final birth pain, announcing the birth of the messianic age, is the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. Now in the Greek text, sign... The word sign is what's called a subjective genitive. That means nothing, I understand. But I, I want to explain what that is so that you understand what this sign is. Because it's a subjective genitive, it means the sign isn't pointing to Jesus. It's not a neon arrow blinking over here. No, because it's a subjective genitive, it means the Son of Man is the sign. You could translate it this way. The sign that is the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? He's the Messianic King. Daniel 7, 3. Behold with clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. 
The sign of the Son of Man is the glorious appearance of the Messianic King in the sky. Ezekiel 43.2 tells us that the glory of the God of Israel was coming in the way from the east and the earth shone with his glory. With day and night sky darkened around the globe, the Messianic King returns in blazing glory. Every eye will see him indeed. And as a result of the manifestation of the king's return, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And again we have another then, another tota, another temporal adverb. At that time, when you see that sign, guess what? The tribes of the earth are going to mourn. Now, the word tribes here is interesting. It's fule, and it can be defined as people groups. The problem is, it's not the typical word for Gentile nations. Usually we have the word ethnos, okay, translated as nations. This word is tribes or people groups, and it's of the earth. So the question has to be asked, is he referring to the world's people groups, or is he referring to Jewish tribes or Jewish people scattered throughout the world? You've got to look at the context. Verse 29, in the first part of verse 29, it was an allusion to Daniel, or excuse me, the first part of verse 30 was an allusion to Daniel 7.13. With the clouds, one like the Son of Man is coming. But the second part of this verse, of verse 30, is an allusion to Zechariah 12, 11-12. Listen to Zechariah. In that day there will be great mourning, where? In Jerusalem. The earth, the land, will mourn. Every family by itself. In the context of Zechariah, the mourning is not coming from Gentiles. The mourning is coming from Jewish people scattered throughout the world. And the word mourn here is interesting. Kopto, it's a, it's a physical lament, literally a beating of one's chest in a sign of repentance. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says... In that day, I will pour out on the house of David. I will pour out on the Jews, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see, upon seeing King Jesus, the Messiah, descending out of the sky, all the Jewish people of the world are going to lament and repent because Yahweh pours out His grace upon them. That's what He's talking about in verse 30. Now how will the Son of Man manifest Himself? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Luke reports in Acts 1 verse 9 and 11 that Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received Him out of His sight. Then the angel said, This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Well, a cloud took Jesus up into heaven, and that means that Jesus will return to earth on the clouds. In Isaiah 19 verse 1, the prophet foretells, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. In Psalm 104 and verse 3, it says Yahweh makes the cloud his chariot. And so we got to ask another question. Lots of questions in this text. What is this cloud upon which Jesus rides? It's a cloud car. Look, let's go over to Ezekiel. 
Keep your finger there in Matthew 24. Let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 1. Find the book of Daniel. Go right before Daniel, you'll find Ezekiel. Because we have a vision. Ezekiel has a vision. For You know, it's not a dream, it's a vision. He's seen something that's happening on a different plane that he couldn't see on the earthly plane. But it's real nonetheless. And we're going to read through verses, one, verses 4 and 5, verse 16, verse 22, and 26 and 28. And as we read through this vision, you're going to see what Jesus is writing when he returns. Ezekiel chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 4 and 5. So Ezekiel says that he sees a great cloud, okay, with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it and in the midst of this cloud something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it, that's the cloud, there were figures resembling four living beings, okay? Let's go to verse 16. Ezekiel 1 verse 16. The appearance of the wheels, yes, that's right, wheels, and their workmanship was like sparkling burl, and all four of them, all four of what? The wheels had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Now, now go down to verse uh, 22. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. And now go down to verse 26 to 28. Above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. And the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So let's recap. Ezekiel sees a cloud of fire and glowing metal. Within the cloud, he makes out a chariot with four wheels moved by four living beings or cherubim. The word wheel there, gagel, denotes the wheel of a vehicle. It's the standard word for a wheel. Okay? Particularly, it's the word for a chariot wheel. The wheel is described in verse 16 as one wheel within another, which depicts a gyroscopic wheel. So there's four of these gyroscopic wheels in this cloud. In fact, in Ezekiel 10 verse 2 and Ezekiel 10 13, it refers to these wheels as whirling wheels, which whirling depicts the gyroscopic action of these wheels. Between the cherubim, blazing fire and lightning appears, which is caused by the movement of these wheels. Above the cherubim, there's an expanse, a rachia, of stretched out thin layers of crystals, which the word crystals here refers to frost or ice. And so we have layer, thin layers of shimmering ice crystals stretched above the cherubims on the top of this cloud. Now, the fact that you have a fiery cloud with ice crystals above it is just fascinating. 
with riding on four wheels. And then above that expanse, sitting on top of this layers of ice crystal, is a throne made of lapis lazuli, which is a precious bright blue gem that was common in the ancient world. So we have a bluish throne, and who does the throne belong to but God? Fire and lightning are around the throne, and on this throne is a man seated, whose upper body is described as fiery glowing metal, his lower body is also like fire, and this is none other than Jesus himself. Very similar depiction of Jesus is found in Revelation chapter 1 by John. Here the fire is the manifestation of his Shekinah glory. The radiance of his glory appears as a rainbow in the cloud that radiates around him. So we have multicolored light reflecting or refracting around throughout the throne and the cloud as an emanations from the Shekinah. So what do we have here? Well, we have this cloud upon which King Jesus returns that is a chariot, a cloud chariot or a cloud car that brings him from heaven to earth. A cloud that's fiery upon which his throne sits on an expanse of shimmering ice crystals. A rainbow encircles it. Fire and lightning comes out from it. And again, it's mobile. It's sitting on four gyroscopic wheels powered by four cherubim. Now that's a sight. And that's the car that picked him up. That's the car bringing him back. And not only will he manifest himself in this cloud car, if you will, but he'll manifest himself with power and great glory. The word power there, again, dunamis, he'll come with authority. He's coming with the authority to bind the Satan for a thousand years. He's coming with the authority to cast the Antichrist and false prophet into the lake of fire. He is coming with the authority to fulfill the scriptures, establish the temple, and restore the world to an Edenic state. He'll also return. He'll also manifest himself with glory. This is the Shekinah, the physical manifestation of God's goodness in the form of visible light. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. Isaiah 60 and verse 2 goes on and says, Behold, darkness will cover the whole earth, deep darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. No one against the black drop of a black, dark, litless sky will miss the brilliance of the manifestation of Jesus' glory. The sight of His glory will bring hope to His elect. But for those aligned with the Antichrist, it will bring sheer terror as their judgment draws near. And finally, we have the mission of the king. The mission of the king's return is revealed in verse 31. The mission of the king's return. At Matthew 24, let's go back there. And he will send forth his angels with a great number, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they'll gather together his elect. Now if that sounds familiar, it should. Because Jesus made similar statements in the sermon about the kingdom, the parables in Matthew 13, 36 to 43 and 13, 47 to 50. See, at the end of the present age, according to Matthew 13, he's going to send forth his angels to gather the righteous into the kingdom and the unrighteous into hell. But the, the emphasis here in verse 31 is on Jesus sending his angels to gather together his 
elect. Now, who's the elect here? It's, again, it's plural, meaning chosen ones, but it refers to a group, particularly Israel. Yes, the church is sometimes referred to as the elect, but the context of Matthew 24 isn't on the church. We're out of here. We're in, we're in heaven at this time. The context here is on the remnant of Jewish believers living in the tribulation. The angels are going to go and they're going to gather the elect, the, they're going to gather the remnant of Jewish believers from the four winds. A common Hebrew expression denoting the four points of the compass. From one end of the sky to the other alludes to Deuteronomy 30. Listen to this prophecy from Deuteronomy 30, verse 4 and 5. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you. Now, let's pause here. Why in the world would there be a prophecy in Deuteronomy about God bringing the people back or regathering the people? Because he told them, if you break my law, I will scatter you. I will send you forth out of the land. But, he says, there is a day coming when I will regather you. Well, guess what? They broke the law. They got scattered. But that's not the end of their story. He promises in the law, the Lord will gather you and he will bring you back. The Lord God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So the end of the sky or the ends of the earth stresses the concept that though Israel has been scattered throughout the world, not one of his elect are going to be forgotten. He's going to regather them. And the angels are going to gather together. I love that word, gather together. It's the word episonago. In Isaiah 52, verse 12, in the Septuagint translation, it uses the word episonago to describe the regathering of Jewish people. Because you will not come out without trouble or go in flight, the Lord God will go before you, and the one who gathers you, the one who episonago you, is the God of Israel. The regathered Jewish believers will be the first citizens of the earthly messianic kingdom. And this is going to involve, by the way, the resurrection of those pre-Christian era saints. There's a special promise in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 2 and verse 13. The, the, Daniel was told, Many of those who sleep, many of those who are dead, in the dust of the ground will awake in that day to everlasting life. But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel was promised that he would be resurrected at the end of the present age. And that happens when the king returns. That's his mission. To regather and restore Israel. To resurrect those Old Testament saints. Now, one final note before we draw this to a conclusion. And that's uh, an interesting word that's used here. He's going to dispatch his angels with what? A great trumpet. A great trumpet. Now, this is significant. You say, why? Because the great trumpet proves that this event is not the rapture. It proves that this event is the return. Because there are two trumpets that will be sounded, separated by seven years. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explaining the rapture of the church, said, in a moment in the twinkling eye, at the what? Last trumpet. 
the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be regathered together with them in the air. So the trumpet that blows at the rapture is called the last trumpet. But Jesus refers to the trumpet sounded as, at his return as the great trumpet. Two different trumpets. Now, in Jewish culture, trumpets are sounded for a number of reasons, but here's one interesting time. They blow trumpets to announce the feasts of the Lord. And so a trumpet is blown at Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets. Take a wild guess at what the name of the trumpet blown at Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is. It's called the Last Trumpet. Following the Feast of Trumpets is seven days of awe when God requires His people to prepare themselves for the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, another trumpet is blown. And guess what the name of that trumpet is called? The Great Trumpet. Coincidence? No, there are no coincidences in Scripture, folks. There's a specific reason why both of those terms are used. The rapture's the last trump. The day of atonement is the great trumpet. Because that's the day that God calls His people to repent. You see, the feasts of the Lord are prophetic, folks. The spring feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, have been fulfilled by Jesus in His death, burial, resurrection, and the birth of the church. Now, there is a gap of time between the spring feast and the fall feast. And guess what? There's a gap in time between Christ's first coming and second coming. We're living in that gap of time that we call the church age. But the fall feast, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles haven't been fulfilled yet. The feast of trumpets, when the last trump is blown, foretells the rapture of the church. The seven days following that trumpet predict the seven-year tribulation. And the day of atonement, when the great trumpet is blown, envisions the return of Christ. Friends, if we had a proper understanding of the biblical feast, of the Lord's feast, we would arrive at the pre-tribulation rapture position. It is one of the best evidences for a pre-tribulation rapture. But hey, you know what? If we just do away with the Hebrew Scriptures, we wouldn't know that, and then we can come up with anything we want to believe. But you know, you have to ask yourselves, why a great trumpet, why a last trumpet? There's your answer. We're out of here in fulfillment at the rapture of the Feast of Trumpets. And he returns with great trumpet in fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Friends, when King Jesus comes, there is going to be mourning. There is going to be undoubtedly mourning from unbelievers. When they're judged, found guilty, and cast into hell. Their mourning is without genuine repentance. But there will be another mourning at the king's return, and that is the mourning that leads to genuine repentance. Many will see the king mourn over their sin and repent. And praise God for that. But friend, I don't want you to confuse the king's return with the church's rapture. The return occurs immediately after the tribulation, not before. Signs and wonders will precede the return, but there's no signs or wonders before the rapture. Listen to the words of 1 Thessalonians 5.2. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now the tribulation is the first event, the first seven years of what is called the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord cannot begin until the rapture occurs. Because there's no signs or wonders preceding the rapture, guess what? The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. And when Jesus comes to rapture the church, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be quick. There's going to be no signs to tell you it's coming. There's no warning. Only those known by Jesus will see him. There's going to be no time to mourn over sin. There's going to be no time to repent. It will be too late. So we ought to all be asking ourselves whether or not we have mourned and repented of sin. Have you done that? Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. My friends, if you refuse to mourn over your sin, there will be no comfort, but only a sure, fiery judgment. The only way that we can guarantee a place in the rapture is to repent and believe the gospel. Raising your hand, walking an aisle, praying a prayer will not cut it unless it is enjoined to genuine repentance and faith. Father God, Lord, we come before you. We come before you through Jesus Christ, the King. And Father, what a great and glorious day His return is going to be. But Father, Lord, I praise you as one of your children, as, one, as part of the bride of your Son, as part of the church, that we will return with Him after the tribulation. Because I praise you, God, that we will be raptured and saved from that wrath to come. I can't praise and glorify you enough, Lord, to know we will escape that wrath. Father, I pray for those who have never mourned over their sin. Lord, I'm sure each and every one of us could testify of somebody we know, a loved one, friend, family member, Lord, who has never mourned over their sin. They've never genuinely repented. Oh, they may have given lip service. They may claim to believe the Bible, but they've never repented. Oh, God, we pray for their souls. We pray that your spirit might move upon them and would, would convict them of truth and, re, and convict them of sin and of righteousness, Father, so that they would mourn so that they would be rescued from the wrath to come. Thank you, Father. We look forward to that great and glorious rapture when, when you assemble us there in heaven, when you remove sin from us, when you restore us to our holiness and righteousness, when we give those new bodies, sinless bodies, perfect bodies, bodies that don't wear out, bodies that don't die any longer. Father, what a great glorious day that will be. And thank you, Father, for that eschatological salvation, that future glorification that's awaiting us. Lord, we want to praise and glorify you for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would go forth doing that. I pray, Lord, that we would still go forth praying for, for those, Lord, who do not know you, that they might be rescued from that judgment to come while it is still time. Father, we commit these things to you and say, Amen.